Uh, the reason that we're covering Psalm 139 tonight, the whole reason is simply because it comes next historically um, in this little book by Eric Lane on the Psalms. It just falls in the early life of David. <clears throat> and um, it's called here um, by Eric Lane, The Searching Eye of God. That's, that's the, um, the title that he gives to it. And... and um, the time in which it took place, I'll just read the, um, the statement on this, um, that David is meditating at nightfall, and we'll see in the psalm where that, that there's mention to the night, and so he indicates he's meditating at nightfall. In the previous psalm, if you remember last week, Psalm 19, which had clear testimony of being in the early part of David's life, and uh, if you remember Spurgeon, Spurgeon was very helpful in that and uh, also affirming what Eric Lane says here. But in Psalm 139, we see David's exalting in God who has revealed his glory in the heavens to all, but is known more intimately by those who perceive him in his word. Towards the end, he realized this same God knows him and that his word is not only a window through which to behold God, but a mirror in which to see himself as God sees him. Reference James 1, 25. Remember, James talks about um, the mirror, the mirror of God's law or word. Now, night is coming on, verse 11 and 12, if you look at Psalm 139. And this happens earlier more quickly in the Holy Land than it does here. So the shepherd would often lose, uh, would often still be out with his flock at nightfall. But his prayer um, of Psalm 19, 12 through 14 is still with him. That he will conquer the errors the word has exposed, the hidden faults, the willful sins, and that he will think and speak in a way pleasing in the sight of the Lord. So watch for that as we read it in a moment. Just as the noon sun had suggested one line of thinking, so the approach of darkness suggests another. God is the Lord of the night as he is of the day, as nothing is hid from, his, from the heat of the sun. That's referencing Psalm 19.6. So nothing could be hidden from the God to whom darkness is as a light. Psalm 139 verse 12. Eric Lane is connecting Psalm 19 with Psalm uh, 139, showing the parallels, showing it's likely... This psalm is written around the same time, whereas the one would be written in a certain time of meditation. This is happening at nightfall as David meditates upon the Word and upon God's world. So let's look at <clears throat> Psalm 139. You can, you can look at it too as when we talked about the book of God's world and the book of God's Word, um, that's still on his mind in this psalm. He's now applying it. He's fleshing it out. So let's hear what he says. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and the dwell in the uttermost parts of the, of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And if you look at the footnote there, fearfully set apart. Wonderful are your word, your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were, was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God's word for God's people, for God's glory. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I wrote an article this week that's basically going to guide my teaching tonight, and um, it was called, What is Satisfying to Know? What is Satisfying to Know? And um, it started with just the thought I was having as I was preparing and working on this psalm is, um, is just having this schizophrenia with social media, like especially Twitter. There's this insatiable desire in me at times I would be able to interpret it as indwelling sin. <laughs> like, like we're getting to Romans 7. And this temptation to want to be, in all factuality, omniscient, to know everything. Because in fact, the reality is, is that the way, um, especially Twitter, or now what is called X, advertises itself, is that um, be in the know. Know, know what's going on. And in truth, you will. You'll know what's going on. You'll know a lot that you wish you didn't know was going on. And then you have to add the layer to it as to what's real and what's not. Um, what's true and what's false that you're supposedly getting to know. But in a matter of moments, you could know things going on all over the world in real time just like that. I could hop on. And I can begin to see, I could see live footage, I could see 
the most atrocious things in the world that I wish I wouldn't see. You could see some wonderful things happen in the world as well. But nonetheless, there's this insatiable desire in and of itself, if, if managed by perhaps the right personalities and the right people, um, obviously can be very good. But for me, it seems to become this um, thing that I want to know, but yet I don't want to know. And I go back and forth on it. It's a struggle because there's a need to know some things going on, but there's also a limit that we have to put on ourselves, and that limit is we're not made to know everything. You ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that we're not made to know everything? We're not made to know what's going on everywhere in the world or about everybody. In fact, it would be unhealthy for us to do so because we're not God. We're not made to carry that type of knowledge on our shoulders. But yet, like children, a lot of times, we think we're able to carry more than we really can. And we go and try. And we become overwhelmed by it. And we are all but little children before God. God is the only one who actually is supposed to be in the complete no because He's omniscient. He knows all things. And He can handle all things. But our unsatiable hunger to know can only be overcome by a satisfying experience of being known by God. That's why I drew from this psalm. I drew this, this idea that found, I found comfort in that my unsatiable desire to know can be overcome with the satisfying experience of being known by God. In other words, I don't have to know everything. But what can satisfy me? What can bring the joy and the pleasure and the happiness that I'm seeking in knowledge actually is found not in my knowing, but in my being known by the Lord. Being known by Him intimately. And so that's the the point I set forth tonight is it's not as important that you know what's going on everywhere or that you even know everything about um, your own life. But what is important is that you are known of the Lord. And so this is the topic, I believe, of the psalm. Satisfaction is found in God's all-knowingness. David is satisfied. David is happy in knowing that the Lord sees and knows everything about him. It brings him satisfaction to know this. In some sense, um, he is satisfied and happy because not only does God know everything about him, but he actually controls all the perimeters of his life. He keeps all of it within a limit. And he's Happy to know that. And um, we see that in the first six verses, especially if you draw up to verse five. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. There's a, a happiness found in the fact that God has put a perimeter, a limit around our lives of our knowledge and a limit around our lives of many other things, many other good searchings the Lord has that he is entrusted and we are not. And so there's a comfort, a satisfaction 
found in the Lord's all-knowingness. We call this His omniscience. There's a satisfaction that's found in His all-presentness. David, on the one hand, feels he needs to escape God, it seems, but he's comforted that he can't escape, that he can't get away from God. Now, someone who's, who's not trusting or believing in the Lord, they want to escape God, but they can't. David, David feels a sense in which almost this desire to, to get away at times, but he finds not, not a satisfaction in getting away. He finds a satisfaction that he can't get away from God's presence. That everywhere he goes, everywhere he, he would search, he can't escape God. And he's comfort, comforted and satisfied in 7 through 18 that he can't, he can't escape the presence of God. Notice the if statements. Um, and these if statements might just be in meditation, right? They might just be as imagining. And I think, again, this is where the, um, the use of imagination is, is right and good. If you just have propositional doctrine, that's all you're made up of. And you don't, you don't, you're not able to sit back, reflect, imagine. It's hard to meditate on Scripture, hard to take it anywhere beyond um, a manual. You need to be able to imagine these things. And I think he might be in these ifs just imagining the experience or it could be a real experience of trials where he is seeking to escape the Lord. Whatever the case is, um, we find both in Scripture. In the process, he finds everywhere he goes or imagines to go, God's there. God is in heaven. God is, as he says here, um, he's even in Sheol, right? That's not a real experience. He can't go to Sheol. Okay, this would be the place of the dead. This would be the place uh, of death. He can't go there. He says even he's there. A lot of people have this idea of even hell without a, a presence of God. But God's everywhere. You say, well, how is God present in those uttermost proportions? where punishment is meted out is because God is the one who, who distributes the punishment, not Satan. We, we often see in cartoons, in movies, in books, especially in medieval literature, the idea that Satan is there with his pitchfork and stabbing down and punishing all the sinners. Well, we have to remember the Scripture doesn't teach that. The Scripture teaches Satan is himself punished by God. It is the divine wrath of God, holy God, that brings punishment upon sin. And, and be reminded, for as a believer, right? As a believer, all of that has been taken by Christ for you. All of that has been meted out on the Savior. So that's why that whole idea of union with Christ is so important. That there's never going to be a time where God brings His judgment on you because He doesn't bring His judgment on those in Christ. And it's just, it just bears so much meditation on that alone. But nonetheless, we see this. He's going and He's saying in Sheol, um, if He takes the wings of the morning and He goes to the uttermost parts of the sea, if He goes there, I think about Jonah. Right, Jonah was trying to escape God. He found out really quick that he couldn't escape God. He couldn't even escape God by having himself thrown into the sea. 
which, um, you know, it'd just be one of those things. If I was given the opportunity to request on a heavenly DVD player, whatever we have by then, um, to see that whole scene, how it played out, the whole timing. I want to see like the, the in time, like how long did it take? Um, how long did those men hesitate before they took him and threw him over? When he said, it's me, throw me into the sea. Did the, did the, was there a pause? Was there... Was it a long pause? Was there, you know, deliberation? Uh, there's some indication in the text of these things, but it would be interesting to know, did it go on a little while? Or did they say, okay. Right? Well, isn't it wonderful that he gets thrown into the sea? God sends, okay, the great fish, great sea monster, the whale, if you will. He sends this great sea creature to swallow him up and preserve him. You know, we think these this awful thing coming, it's just getting going from bad to worse, but in actuality, the thing that would look and be the death of any man becomes the house of this man of safety. And he finds that not even there could he escape, not merely could he escape God, he could not escape the saving God. There's a lot of Christians. Um, it's not that we want to push to this extent. You, if you do this, you would be a fool to do it. You'd be a fool to test God. You'd be a fool to test God and to say, well, I'm just going to go run into everything I can and He's going to be everywhere and He has to save me because He said He'll save me. That would be a foolish folly to do. But at the same time, I would say there's a lot of testimonies of people who are truly Christians who have run after the wrong things and they've found that in the midst of those, those circumstances, God will not let them go. God won't let His people go. He, he loves them. I think of a song where it tells us that His love will not let us go. And it's true. It's absolutely true. In Christ, you cannot be let go. There is a a hold fast on your life whereby there is no place. And it's a good thing. It's not that you can't escape God. That's one thing. If it's a wrathful God, you have reason to want to escape. And there's actually a place to escape. It's in Jesus Christ. That's why He sent His Son. So you would have salvation. But as a Christian believer, you're running to whatever you think will give you this temporary satisfaction because you've given in to indwelling sin. Not even... Not even in the depths of this earth could you escape that and that He would not reach out to save His children. It's really an amazing love. Because in reality, we deserve to be just let to go headlong. Right? If Jonah was outside of Christ, right, there would be every reason in the world to let him go and plunge to the depths of the sea and be no more. And find himself in eternal separation from God. But that's not what happens. That's not the story that's written. And for his wisdom, he at times, he at times has let, he has let true believers go and make horrible mistakes to find out that he's there in the darkest of times and he brings them back. There would be no story of the prodigal. There would be no story of, of men and women. There, there would hardly be, hardly be the gatherings of people throughout the world 
were it not for there being a God who cannot be escaped, who is also a savior for those people who at times have made decisions of folly. Well, David was not immune to that. He's a young man. He's a young man. He's meditating on this likely, but surely maybe at times he's gone off to where he shouldn't and God rescued him. But again, that's, there's a fine line between presumption, right? There's no guarantee, if, right? When you're, when you're living in sin, there's no way for you to tell if that's going to happen, right? There's no evidence. So be careful not to test the Lord in this. This is good news, though, for those who can rejoice tonight that they've been there. They've experienced it. As much as they want to outrun God, God was there. God brought them back. And I'm thankful he did. I'm, I'm thankful the Christians I meet that he's brought back. Because in a lot of ways, he's used those Christians in my life to help me know the grace of God better. And the church wouldn't be the same without him. Well, he, he finds the thoughts of God to him to be most precious. Our thoughts, many of nights, our thoughts can be so um, morbid, so destructive, so pessimistic and, and um, depressing. And there's not really a lot of comfort in our thoughts, but God's thoughts at night, God's thoughts towards us don't change. And he finds in verse 17 through 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Not only are they precious in the sense of the way he looks towards those in his son, but there is no end to those thoughts. He said, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. The number of God's thoughts towards David are to him innumerable and favorable. The picture of sand is, if you remember, it is always a drawing to the covenant of God. God is pointing out, count, count the grains of sand on the seashore, if you can. Count the stars in the sky. This, this natural revelation, as some call it, and really nature has no revelation. God's the revealer of all things. But nonetheless, for the sake of us understanding, we're talking about creation that he's made. This natural revelation bears witness to God, the glory of God, as we saw in Psalm 19. We see it again here. And he speaks in terms of the covenant. He speaks in terms of God's coming to man. If God, God's um, work towards us is always on the basis of covenant. We confess that the distance between the creature and the creator was so great that the only way he could work in mercy towards us would be he would work by covenant. And immediately this idea of the, the numerous grains of the sand bring us back to the covenant that he made with Abraham and the descendants that are promised to be innumerable. Unable to be counted. And, and this is why we have hope in the fact that one could be a small number in the world of Christians, but we're not living in remnant days. We're living in days in which the gospel has come to the world. There are people that know Christ all over the world. God's filling the world with a beach of sand, if you would. He's making, making a numerable amount 
of those who will call on the name of the Lord throughout the world. There's no reason at all, even logically speaking, to doubt that God will not fill this earth with His glory and the knowledge of it, just like He promised. Man will attempt to build his Babel. And isn't it, isn't it often the case that we get on and it, it somewhat unnerves us, right? We get on social media, we get on television, we get on something that tells us all the things are crashing and the sky is falling and people are building another tower. You take yourself back to right before the covenant, Genesis 11, right? The covenant's given in Genesis 12. Take yourself back there. Genesis 11, you have them building a tower. It's going to reach to the heavens. It even says why, what they were thinking. It says they were thinking, we're going to build this so we wouldn't be scattered. And the next sentence says, so God scattered them. God has a sense of humor. So God scattered them. Think about anything that has the, the context of a Babylonian type Babel system. Anywhere in the world, anytime in the world, you can trust. As sure as God exists, you can trust. As sure as God and His presence is on earth and His people, as sure as God has given authority to His Son in heaven and on earth, you can trust that that can only be built so far before God will bring it to destruction. Those things will not be ultimately successful. What will be ultimately successful, even, even up against the gates of hell, Christ says will be the building of His church. That's the building program that lasts and grows increasingly to the end. We need to be careful to be not like the ten spies that actually disbelieve the Word of God about God giving them the land. We need to be careful to not be amongst the rabble of those who because of their fear, and really it's their lack of faith in God, they choose to disbelieve Him. And again, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but it doesn't mean He doesn't chastise those who because of their unbelief about God's promises, the way we think in this world, then instead of admiring and being in awe about the sum of His thoughts towards His people, that we disbelieve that He has such thoughts towards His people. These are thoughts that are of favor. These are thoughts that will bring down the Babylonian systems and that will cause the church to thrive. They are innumerable thoughts. God's presence for the Christian is never, never a reason to escape, but it's a reason to exalt it's a reason to rejoice. It's a reason to boast. If there's something to boast about, it should be boasting about the presence of the Lord. And in time, I think the testimonies of that is built just like it is in David's life. Many nights that we were at our worst, that God comes along our side, and maybe through a family member, maybe through opening up a Bible. Again, it's not, it's presumption at times, but sometimes. Sometimes you're at your end. But it's in that midst that he's going to, he's going to work. He's going to speak. And uh, many people were converted that way. Augustine, take up and read. Here's a little boy. He opens up, just happens to open up part of Romans and reads it. Um, admittedly, there's times, there's times, I don't know where to turn. 
open the Bible. And just the word comes off the page. You just begin reading. Just start reading where it is. And it's just the word you need. Again, I don't advise people. If someone came to me and said, hey, well, I kind of have this idea. I like to just open the Bible where it is and read. I would say, don't do that. You get yourself in a lot of trouble. But I'm saying there, there are occasions. There are occasions where God, in His mercy, you open that Bible, and He superintends the page it lands on and the text you read. And it makes all the difference. Or you turn on, a, as, as abundant as we have, a, we have an abundance of Bible teaching and we turn on maybe a regular devotion or lesson or a sermon that we want to listen to for that day or week, devotion, and we turn it on and God speaks to us and just changes the whole attitude we have. He does that. He does that day and He does it at night. Satisfaction is found in those moments. That's when we're our happiest. Satisfaction is found in God's all holiness. He's completely holy. He's truly holy. He expresses in 19 through 22 this idea. If you see there, his crying out, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And he continues to the end, even to his own life. He says, don't just stop with slaying the wicked out there. But slay the wicked in here. Search me, know me. He's dissatisfied with wickedness. Um, Only unbelievers are satisfied with more wickedness. Only unbelievers are saying... Let let more evil let's let evil come. Do more evil so good will come. Only only the ungodly and the wicked would seek after promoting anything that would fill the world with violence so that they would be able to get in power. This was the whole heart of what we learned in 2 Kings 1 Kings of Baalism. Baalism had the same philosophy as you see of many, many um, militant groups today that wish to promote violence so that, quote, the systems fall down and they can rise to power. I fear, though, that sometimes we can be mistaken as having the same attitude. We do actually believe that God is shaking the things in the world so that those that can't be shaken would remain. But that, that needs to be distinguished. We don't find satisfaction in seeing the world plummet in its folly. We don't desire to see even the worst sinners to be going down in their pain. We don't wish to see any human being made in the image of God ever, ever brought to more and more evil and suffering. We would wish it all to stop. But there is a cry, I think, that comes out of the heart of every Christian. and That is, let the wicked stop. Let this be brought to an end. He speaks of slay the wicked. Obviously, he's in a, a time that people wrestle about this in the Psalms, how we should pray what's called imprecatory prayers. We, many theologians have wrestled with this whole idea. I personally find that the prayer that we pray for imprecation upon the wicked 
is first and foremost that God would slay them with his word because we see the book of Revelation gives us the picture exactly what he will do. He will, by the sword of his mouth, not a physical sword, by the sword of his mouth, he slays the wicked and will feast on the flesh of kings and of greats. I don't, I don't think that's talking about a, a picture of us sitting down and physically eating the flesh of, of kings and leaders that have done wrong in the world. I don't really, I would never look forward to that, right? It's figurative. It's speaking about God's word is promised to go and do that. And I'm of the conviction that that's part of the authority he brings to bear to fulfill Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. How, how he will do that, the limits of our knowledge are, are tapped out at one thing, and that is he tells us he'll do it through his word proclaimed in the world. So I think at the, at the minimum level, we should be praying that God would slay the wicked with his word. But at the same time, too, I mean, I don't, I think just in the sense that God hates evil. And uh, we, we often have the angst that God, just bring this, bring this wickedness. There, there are some, some situations that deserve immediate judgment. We see crimes committed. And we see murder. Murder deserves, deserves punishment of death. A sword, the physical sword, should be brought down by the civil government upon the, the wicked. They should punish the wicked and reward the good. That's God's kingdom reigns over them as well as the church. As a church, we're not called... We're not called to go and create a militia to, to be the government. We're not called to do that. We are called, though, to pray that the government would do their job. We're called, if we are in government, to hold accountable those in our congregation, to be making just laws, to be doing the right things, to be encouraging them towards they have the theology. So when they go and they stand and they, they would stand and fight for just laws in the land, and they would bring God's law to bear on the people because it's good for the people. It's good for the land. Regardless if they're Christian or not, God's law is good everywhere, and it's accountable for every man. And we see, actually, there's some that are doing that. And praise be to God for those men that are standing up and, and fighting so that just laws are made and also just punishments are meted out. In the latest um, magazine, World Magazine, I haven't read the articles on it, but the front story is on the issue of the fact that there are people being placed in jails and prisons throughout, throughout the United States and not given a speedy trial. They're left there for years without ever being, they're not even tried, they're not even convicted. And then we have the problem that we have people that are clearly guilty clearly guilty of murder and the grossest kinds of destruction upon God's image bearers and, and deserve to die. And yet, instead of them being put to death speedily for their crime, they are, they are put there and they are funded and cared for by taxpayers. That's just unjust. That's wicked. That's a wicked government. 
that's not punishing the evil of those in its society that are hurting its own people. There's something violently wrong there. Does it not stand that our hearts should agree with God that that is wicked? Should we not cry out in agreement with the Spirit of God who wrote this text, slay the wicked? But yet there's oftentimes many PR campaigns, public relation campaigns, all meant to make us feel sorry for the ones whom have committed the most gross crimes against humanity, who deserve to die. And it seems that governments that are humanistic will actually defend and stand up for the rights of those, while at the same time, they will condemn the innocent. They will condemn those who don't know their right hand from their left. And that's where, yes, yes, what David says here does come into play with the issue of the unborn. You know, were it not for grace, were it not for grace, I'd be in the same boat as all these unbelievers. Guilty of murder, guilty of crime, guilty of all these things. I'd be guilty with everybody else. I'd be going headlong into sin. But because of grace, He stopped me. I look back, He stopped me. I remember a a young lady in a church that had an abortion and God had convicted her heart. She confessed that sin to God. God forgave her of that sin. And we used to, every January, try to do something to celebrate life. Um, we wanted to say, you know, educate people on that issue. And so we would at times give opportunity for someone to give a testimony about that. And that young lady gave a testimony. And instead of it being received with joy by the church, we actually had those of her family find it to be detestable, shameful. Well, it complicates things, doesn't it? Because oftentimes in the case of abortion and things like that, the guilt doesn't just lay on the one who aborts, who has murdered the child. It lays upon a doctor, so-called, who executed that child. It lays upon perhaps a friend, family member who has paid for that abortion. It lays upon those who have encouraged it. It lays upon a lot of people, right? So there's a lot of guilt. But there is no amount of guilt if given over to the Lord and confessed to the Lord, He can't forgive and He won't forgive. I mean, there's just an open promise. Like, on a day where this woman should be commended for the fact she had the courage to say, were it not for grace, I, I would continue that way. And, I, and, he, and she cares about the church and wants to educate young ladies in the church. Hey, it could get very difficult. You can make some great mistakes, but don't do this. Don't do this. Please don't do this. So, for whatever that's worth, you just never know how it might maybe impact someone. I, I don't know. You never know. 
what people's pasts are or what's going on in people's lives or who may listen to this later, whatever the case would be. But I would just say, look, God is a, is a God of grace, God of mercy. And he saves a lot of people who have done some horrible things. David's, David's on the list. And David experienced God's grace. He knew he couldn't go anywhere. Maybe, maybe some of the meditation he was going to run, even as a young man, he was wanting to run to different places or think about that and just have that on his mind because maybe there was some sense in which of the, a guilt. And it, it certainly goes with the end of it because he says, look in me, search me, knowing that the possibilities actually that there could be such wickedness in me that needs to be dealt with. There's a, a fine line between introspection Introspection, meaning a search within and um, asking, asking God to introspect you, to look in you. I think it's very unhealthy um, to overthink our own mistakes, right? On a, I have the tendency to do that. That's why I'm so schizophrenic on Twitter. That's why I'm such a mess on social media. I'm just, it's me. I know my personality. I know who I am. I'm a mess. And I, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm not in the, you know, there's a bunch of people in the same boat with me. And we just overthink things about what we say, what we do, to where it becomes our worst enemy. And we need to repent of that. We're thinking way too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Because God, God uses, God's the one in control. But we ought to be very open to letting God investigate our hearts. And the way I think that looks is regular habitual exposure to the Word of God, to good literature that's filled with the Word of God, and to good people who are also saturated with the Word of God. That it is in those means that He often brings some examination to us that isn't, isn't making us go inward. It actually makes us want to change. Um, iron sharpens iron. So does my, one man sharpen another. We see that when godly are together, it's often that we share experiences, successes. We share also failures. But this is an experiential testimony. David cries out, search me. And as we're reading the Bible, oftentimes it might be that we see something that pricks our heart. It may be true about us. It may not be. We don't want to rush to the assumption. What should we do? I think the way it looks is we pray. We say, Lord, is that true of me? If it is true of me, I pray you would root that out of me. I pray you would make that clear to me. I would caution you to simply accept every bad thing said in the Bible is true of you. Not, not every evil that's ever been done on earth is evil that you have done. So there are times though, that God grips your heart and shows you you're the man. You're that person. You're thinking that way. You repent of that. And I think that's going to be crystal clear. That's not going to be something that would condemn you and drive you away from the Word. It wouldn't drive you away from God. It wouldn't drive you away from God's people. In fact, I would say those would be flags right away. 
That's not God speaking to you. And I think we have to learn the art of that. The art of conversing with God over the Word of God. How can you tell that this is just something popping in your head or something that is of satanic source or is this something of the Lord? Because God doesn't do that work for you, right? You've got to renew your mind with dependence on the Spirit of God to discern. You have to do the work of discerning. That's what Romans 12 says. You have to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed Why? how? By the renewal of your mind. And what does it say? That by testing, you may discern the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Which indicates to me, it takes a lot of work to get there. It may take a, a, a restless fight. It might take a difficult week or year or whatever. But the gold that's there that comes out of it becomes not only a comfort to you, but a comfort for others that go through those experiences in the future. Well, Psalm 139, if anything, is an evidence of that because this psalm has brought more hope to people that can be counted. People that found themselves in the darkest, most depressing circumstances would read this psalm and find themselves comforted by the fact that they are in places where they thought God was not and God's still there with them. If it was if if God if it was off limits for God to be in the darkest places, none of us would be here because we were in the most separated place that we could be. We were separated from God because of our sins. God had to go there to reach us. And if he did that at one point in our life, why would we ever doubt that he would not be with us in our lowest or darkest or most depressing times? God is present. It's a comforting thing to know. You could go and find out a bunch of knowledge, but it's a comforting thing to know He is present everywhere. And it's in sync with what the New Testament says. Scripture interprets Scripture. The analogy of Scripture, as theologians call it, is you compare Scripture with Scripture, you find this is the way David spoke in Galatians 4.9. He said, but now you have come to know God. Speaking to the Galatians, you have come to know God. Or rather, I think this is amazing how he corrects himself in the midst of a sentence in Holy Scripture. Or rather to be known by God. And it's on that basis that Paul brings some correction to their lives and tells them not to go back to the worthless and elementary principles the vain things that will enslave you. Don't go that way. Why? Because you've come to know God or rather to be known by God that you shouldn't go off that way. And they obviously did go off that way a little bit. Peter did. Peter started going the wrong direction and Paul testifies bringing a strong rebuke publicly to his face. This will be true to him. You've come to know God or to be known by God. So don't go that way anymore. The other, there's another text, 1 Corinthians 8 3. If anyone loves God, if anyone loves God, it says, it doesn't say he knows God, it says he's known by God. 
The knowledge of his knowledge of us is what brings the comfort. Not our self-statement that we know God, but the knowledge that he knows us. When it talks about the warning in 1 John 2, 15-17, about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, it says that where those things exist in the person, the love of the Father is not in them. The love of the Father is placed in His people that He knows. He knows the way of the righteous. I think it's in the first Psalm we see that He knows. He knows their way, but the way of the wicked perishes. So, isn't it satisfying to know these? Is it satisfying to know all the things about what's going on in the world? No, it's not. It's, it's, it's really very dissatisfying especially when you begin to know so much. It's not made for us to know all those things. It's not a thing to say, let's not know anything. We should certainly care. We should know enough so that we may pray and we may be informed about what's going on in the world. But know yourself by the Lord's grace as to when you need to cut that off when you need to draw back to this type of knowledge. When, when you feel yourself going into a hole, per se, of depression or discouragement, where it begins to overflow upon those around you and affect your conversations so much that that's, that's all is on the plate. It's maybe time to draw back. Know yourself. The way you know yourself is first by knowing the Lord who knows all who is all holy, who is everywhere present. To know this God who knows you and to have the knowledge that He knows you. I found, I found at the beginning of this week especially, was most comforting. And it helped me to, uh, at least for a few days, not imbibe too much off of the screen. Now, there's still that struggle. And that's where you have to pray for me and pray for others. Pray that we'll have a balanced um, use of things that are not necessarily evil, but a balanced utilization of these things for the glory of the Lord. Let us be careful that perhaps, perhaps our dissatisfaction with many things is because we're not going to the thing that can satisfy us most. And perhaps this will help us all this week. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. And I didn't bring the number up with me. So let's stand together. We'll hear what number it is.